Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. And I'll be reading in the ESV, which is the same Bible in your pew, so please follow along. Please rise for the scripture. Thank you. (laughs) Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, They sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's word. He smiled and he looked at us and he asked, he says, what does Jesus mean to you? As I heard that question, I wanted to cry out with everything in me. He's everything to me. But I couldn't. Because I know he really wasn't. I still entertain sin in my mind and in my heart. I still revolve life around myself. I know I failed to really be there for the people that God wanted me to be there for. Oh, as much as I wanted to say he's everything to me, I failed. I do today. But my heart still cries out, I want him to be everything to me. Let me ask that question of you today. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. Our Father, what this text says today... The answers it gives us and the tugs that it has on our hearts are not mere letters on a page, not merely words that come out of a preacher's mouth. These are spiritual truths that only your spirit can make real in our lives. Father, so often we either harden our hearts or we... Our ears become dull because we hear this so often. We fail to treasure and to value and to be overwhelmed by the truth of who you are and what you can mean to us. God, I pray your spirit move. Meet each of us where we are today to see Jesus 
as he is shown in this passage. In Christ we pray. Amen. What does Jesus mean to you? Do you get that emphasis? To you. What Jesus means to you is intricately tied into the question of who is Jesus? For who we see Jesus as begins to give us an understanding of what he should be, what he should mean in our lives. And then, of course, there is living that out in our real responses. Uh, Who Jesus is, we've already seen in previous sermons. Uh, Those in Nazareth, they they were astonished by Jesus' teaching and miracles, but he was so familiar to them, uh, they were put off by Jesus' claims. And so to him, he was just another person. Maybe a good teacher, but that was it. They didn't really want anything to do with him. We saw that to Herod, he was a threat. He was a threat to their lives because he could well have been like John the Baptist in his preaching. And the response was, let's do away with the one who claims to have truth that will rule over our lives. To the Jewish leaders and to the Romans, he was, to the Jewish leaders, he was a blasphemer that needed to be put down. To the Romans, he was an inconvenience in their lives, better to be just done away with as well. To the ones we see today in this passage, the disciples, he became their lives because they saw him as Lord. And they said, he's everything to me. And they lived inconsistently with that, but they ultimately lived that out. And so as we we look in this passage today, and Matthew, I think, is bringing a lot together in this very center of the book, the 14th chapter of 28 chapters. And he is giving a picture of Jesus where the disciples finally get something about Jesus that they weren't really getting up to this point. And they will lose in the future and get back again. But Matthew is bringing it all together right in the very center of these ver- this passage to proclaim, to tell us who Jesus is. And that is Jesus is God Almighty. Matthew began the book by referencing Isaiah's prophecy saying that this child who is going to be born... There's a child who's going to be born who is Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And so Matthew declared at the very beginning of the book, Jesus is the very presence of God living among us. And the end of the book, Jesus gives a commission in which he says, go into the world and baptize them, in the name, uh, make disciples and baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you note know very closely, those are three names. And yet, he says, baptize them in the name, singular, of three. And that is what it, because it is a reference to the Trinity. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Even the, the message that about uh, the reference to John the Baptist. Matthew quotes Isaiah and he says, there will be a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In the Old Testament, that word Lord is Yahweh, the personal name of God. So Matthew has laid it out for the audience, Jesus is God. And it is here where it seems the disciples finally get it. Notice in their response, Jesus comes out when he's walking on the water and they're terrified because they think it's a ghost and they Jesus assuages their terror by saying, it is I. And eventually Jesus comes to see and notice the response of the disciples. It says they worshipped him. And they said, truly you are the Son of God. Now, the Son of God to us, uh, sometimes we say, well, that's a special title. I know we're sons and daughters of God. But in that context, to the Jew, the son of somebody meant you were an equal of. You are the same nature of, just as my sons are the same nature as I am, I'm human. The son of God would be seen, a declaration of one calling himself the son of God or God, his father, would be taken to mean that he is divine. And that's exactly what we see in John 5, 17, when Jesus says, my father and I are working. And it said the Jews immediately respond and it says they sought all the more to put him to death because he was making himself equal to God. And notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, wait, wait a second, you're misunderstanding. I didn't, I didn't mean it in that sense. I meant, you know, we're all children. Jesus never corrects their understanding that he has said he is God. Now, in this book, up to this point, the disciples have not declared Jesus is the Son of God. God declared it at Jesus' baptism, that truly this is my Son. Satan declared it in the wilderness. He says, if you are the Son of God, and you are, is the way that should be translated. The demon-possessed man, the demons knew he was the Son of God. They said, oh, Son of God. But the disciples have not said it up to this point. And here they witness something about Jesus where they finally get it and they declare him Son of God. And what do they do? They worship him. And no monotheistic good Jew would ever worship any person, only God. Somehow, finally, right here, they get it. And we might say, well, the Trinity, you know, we're taught that when we're little. And, you know, I grew up in church my entire life, and it didn't hit me that Jesus is God until I was 22 years old. After I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I, I didn't get it. And I'm wondering if some of us have just kind of 
drifted through on understanding, you know, Jesus is God. He has been God eternal. He's come to earth. And somehow, either because of the miracles or it's a possibility because of what Jesus said when he was on the water. Because when Jesus cries out to them, here I am in our text, the Greek is ego eimi, which translated literally is I am. I am. We sang that in the verse, the great. He is the great I am. That means he is God. When Moses meets God and God says, you know, I'm going to send you back to the Jews. You're going to be my instrument in bringing them out of Egypt. He says, uh, tell me who you are. You know, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. He is the great I am. That's his personal name. My, my, my name is Bruce Daggett. God's name is I am or Yahweh. And we see that again in the Gospel of John where Jesus declares before the religious leaders, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews pick up stones immediately to stone him to death for blasphemy, for making himself equal to God. And so perhaps they pick it up when he says, ego in me, and drive it home that these words are the center of the passage. If you count the words before them and the words after them, these two words are in the very center of the passage. Jesus is declaring, I am. I have been with the Father and I have lived within a dynamic union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perichoruses, from eternity past. Now, so the first question is, who am I? And Matthew is screaming out, you are God. The disciples are finally screaming out, truly, you are the Son of God and worship him. And the question is today to you, who is Jesus to you? And there are some who say Jesus is a mythological figure. And that just doesn't hold water. There is too much historical evidence to say that Jesus is a myth. As I stated previously, the foremost Roman historian and the foremost Jewish historian, Tacitus and Josephus, both speak of Jesus as a historical figure. Others would say, well, Jesus is a creation of the imaginations of the disciples and what they wanted him to be. That doesn't hold water either. For right here you see, and you see it throughout Scripture, the disciples are struggling throughout is, who is this? They didn't get it till right here. Truly, this is the Son of God. Also, if you were going to create a religion which is going to go to the Jews first, you are not going to create a religion that says your leading figure is God. If the Jews wake up every morning reciting the Shema, the Lord our God is one. That's it. There is one God. And so when you have this proclamation of Jesus, 
they, they would immediately say, no, no, Yahweh is God, Jesus is different. They don't understand the Trinity. And, and so Jews aren't going to respond to this. I mean, the disciples had a pretty good game here going by simply saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one you've been waiting for. This is the fulfillment of your Jewish religion. This is the guy. Look at the miracles. Follow him. You wouldn't make up a story where your leader is God. It turns off too many people. So, is Jesus a great teacher? The passage doesn't allow it. He is much more than simply a teacher. He is one to be worshipped. Who is Jesus to you? The scriptures cry out, he is God. You accept that? Or you accept that which really doesn't fit? So, who is Jesus, therefore, what does he mean to me? What is our response to him going to be? And we see that in this passage, and I just realized I skipped a whole section of my sermon. So let's go back a second, because this passage not only says who Jesus is, it's a description of the ministry and the mission of Jesus himself. And I believe, again, by putting this in the center of the book, Matthew is trying to give us a parallel story to who Jesus is and his mission. So see how the story starts out is Jesus sends the disciples out onto the sea. You know, they're just they're going out onto the ocean. They're used to that. The sea is calm and everything's fine. Jesus goes up the mountain to commune with God. So the story begins with Jesus communing with God. The disciples are out on the sea. But a storm comes out onto the sea that is a tremendous threat to the disciples. Jesus leaves the mountain, comes out on the sea, and he enters into the storm. The violent winds rocking all. Peter walks out to him and immediately sees the waves, starts to sink. He knows he's in trouble and he says, save me. Jesus reaches out and saves him and calms the storm. It is a picture of who Jesus is and what he has come for. From eternity past, God, Jesus Christ, was with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living in intimate communion with each other. Humanity was created and placed in really a paradise. The sea was calm. But when man and woman chose against God, the storms raged. There's turbulence. Our world got tipped upside down and twisted. The world you see today and your heart knows it is not what God originally intended and created. It is very different. It is a broken world where diseased pestilence, weeds, death, destruction. It's not the world that we were meant to live in. But Jesus steps down from his communion with the Father and Son. He steps out of heaven, enters into our world in the turbulence of our world to reach out and to save us. And one day he will calm our storm of life itself. And our world will be as it was originally intended 
when he returns. So we have the person of Christ, the mission of Christ. And now we have the response of the disciples. They are caught in a storm. Just like all of us. We live in a broken world. You feel it. You feel the pressures. You feel the hurts. You feel the disappointments. You see the tragedies. And if those aren't happening into your life, all you need to do is look next door, look across the street, look across the ocean. And there are much greater horrors in this world taking place than we could ever imagine. We're living in a turbulent ocean. And in that storm, a figure comes toward us. Jesus enters into that storm, and the first question is, who who is that? And their first response is, it's a ghost. You know, they are terrified that it is a ghost. They don't understand it is Jesus. And I'm probably diverging a bit from what Matthew intended, but it makes sense to me. It fits the scripture, so I'm going to share it. People miss who Jesus is, just like the disciples missed who Jesus is. I mean, imagine them, if they did recognize Jesus, it'd be like, it can't be Jesus, right? Because people don't walk on water. It can't be Jesus. It's That's too good to believe, right? You're in the middle of a storm, and you see this phantom figure coming out at you, and it, it's too good a news that it's Jesus come out walking out here. I mean, whew, it's too good a news. And do you realize that there are some people who reject the message of Jesus Christ because it's too good to believe? In fact, that, that's, that's it for everybody. If you're ever going to reject Jesus, do it because it's too good to believe. <laughs> it's unimaginable that God himself would enter into this broken world Take our sin upon himself so that we could be made whole. We could live forever with God and have this world transformed again. Seems too good to believe, but it is Jesus. It is why he came. And it is whom we worship today as we come here. He has come for you. Great news. And so finally, Jesus quickly assures them. He says, it is I or I am. Then he says, don't be afraid. Take heart. Do not fear. And let me just pause here. What storm are you going through? What if you heard Jesus say to you personally what he said to the disciples. Take heart. I am here. You don't need to fear. What are you fearing? Can you imagine what life would be like if you had no fears? If you always took heart? You can if you realize Jesus is here. 
And so Peter then in his response, now Jesus is here. I'm going to walk out onto the water just like Jesus. And, you know, to some extent, that was we were created in the image of God to live as the image of God on this earth. And there is only one who lived that life truly as the image of God. And that was Jesus himself. He was the only one capable of living that life. Yet Peter has this capability as he starts to step out. Do you think it was because Peter all of a sudden could walk on water? Or do you think it was because Jesus was able was the one who was capable in upholding him as he walked on water? And of course, it's another lesson for us. That is, we don't have the capability of living out the Christian life, but Jesus Christ does, and Christ in you can help you walk on water to live as Christ lived, to be imitators of Christ. It's possible through the power of God that lives within the believer. But, of course, here we have Peter imitating Christ until he looks at the waves, the storm, the wind, and he seeks, sinks. And he immediately cries out what we all need to cry out, save me. And this is sent just as this passage shows us it's right in this centrally that who Jesus is, he is God. This passage also shows us for who we are. We are sinking and we need a Savior. We need to cry out desperately, save me. We need to feel what Peter felt as he sunk in that water. We need to feel that passion, save me, to really reach out and accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And I think sometimes we settle for less than that in our gospel as we Share the gospel with people. Very often, maybe because we, we want to see conversions or uh, we want to not offend a person, uh, we tweak the gospel into perhaps invite Jesus into your heart. Not, you need a Savior desperately. Or, you know, you've committed some sins and Jesus died on the cross, now pray this prayer. And we don't stop and really drive home how sinful we are, how needy we are for a Savior, how horrific the judgment of God is that Jesus has come to save us from. George Barna is a, uh, is a, a Christian pollster. And he's nationally renowned in his polls. They're often cited. And, and he did a little study about uh, baby boomers. That's my generation. There's a number of us here. And this is what he saw. After poring over numerous national studies we've conducted since the early 80s, I believe that the issue is the way in which we have proposed Christianity to the boomer generation. At heart, boomers are consumers. The way we presented Christ to most boomers struck a resonant chord with them from that mindset. We told them all they had to do was say a prayer admitting they made some mistakes, they're sorry, and they want to be forgiven. Boomers weighed the downside, which really amounted to nothing more than a one-time admission of imperfection and weakness, in return for permanent peace with God and figured it's a no-brainer. 
I can't lose transaction. The consequence has been that millions of boomers who said the prayer, asked for forgiveness, and went on their way with virtually nothing changed. Sadly, the researcher continued, they misunderstand the heart of the matter. They saw it as a deal in which they could exploit God and get what they wanted without giving up anything of consequences. But very few American Christians have experienced a sense of spiritual brokenness that compelled them to beg God for mercy and acceptance through the love of Christ. We have a nation of Christians who took the best offer, but relatively few who were so humiliated and hopeless before a holy and omnipotent God that they cried out for undeserved compassion. Do you realize, have you realized how lost we are? How desperate we are for a Savior. And God sent that son, that Savior in His Son who took our sin so He could reach down as we were drowning and pull us out. Have you ever been as desperate as Peter and called out for the Savior? There's a couple more features I want to draw out of this passage. Uh, one is the, the emphasis here on the wavering of Peter. I can relate to that a lot. Uh, Peter starts by walking on the water. And, uh, you know, Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. So Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water. He came to Jesus. And then he begins to sink. Jesus reaches out. And saves him. And then Jesus says what? Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Now, at first that sounds like Jesus saying, man, you don't have any faith. You're just, you're, you're just, you're doubting who I am and that I could rescue you. But that's not really what he's saying here. The word doubt occurs only one other time in the entire New Testament, and it occurs at the end of Matthew when Jesus is resurrected and he's with the 11 disciples, the 11 faithful disciples, and it says, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. Do you get that? The 11 disciples after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, some of them who were worshipping him still doubted. It doesn't mean they're doubting and questioning who they are. The word doubt here, uh, as one commentator says it, uh, we note that the word doubt here does not so much connote a theological uncertainty or unbelief as a practical hesitation, wavering, being in two minds. Doubt isn't like, I don't really believe it's true. It's doubt of, I believe this, but... There's these tugs on my life. There's this that's saying I shouldn't believe it. No, this says I should believe it. And, and I, I do want to follow Jesus, but are there are all these other tugs on my life in this direction. And what happened to Peter was he he's t- was torn in two directions. He looked at Jesus and he said, wow, this is great. He's walking on water. Then he looked at the storms and he began to waver. What's greater? What's the greater power in his life, Jesus or, or the wind? And he doubted, and he was not of no faith. He, he was of little faith. 
being torn in two directions and unfortunately went the directions that the circumstances tugged him. And, and we who are worshipers of God are always going to be tugged in two directions. The question is, which is going to win out? Are we going to be so captured by Jesus Christ, focused on Jesus Christ, that our eyes stay on Christ? And this is the essence of the Christian life. And probably every preacher that's ever preached this passage will say, it's when when Peter took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the storm that he sank. It's when we take our eyes off Jesus that we will begin to sink in life. Jesus himself said, abide in me and in my words, and you will bear much fruit. There's no way to bear fruit apart from that. The Christian life is all about abiding Christ, continually keeping focused, zeroed in on who Christ is, taking every thought captive to Christ, and not hearing all the other voices that are coming our way, or taking those voices and filtering them through your vision of who Christ is. <clears throat> and then one, the one last feature that I see in this passage is that it is a preparation. This section of Scripture, including the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, and Jesus' miracles on Gennesaret, I think work in tandem as a preparation of Jesus' disciples for carrying out the Great Commission. Uh, the last words of Jesus, said miracle with the feeding of the 5,000, right at the end it says that they picked up 12 baskets of bread. Now, commentators are all over the place here, and it's really hard to pick out exactly what that means. Because of the way these stories fit together, I think it is a picture of the fact that there are 12 baskets of bread left to be distributed, one for each disciple to distribute. And if that's the case, it fits the Great Commission, and it helps show us that this is a preparation for Jesus' disciples. The first story being the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples see, in that story, the disciples see the incredible need that the world has. And they look at their own resources and see, I got nothing for them. I mean, Jesus is going to say, go into the world. And they're going to say, what have I got? But they also see Jesus. Jesus sees the need and he knows the provision of God. It is something the disciples need to know and that we need to know. There is a tremendous, tremendous need out there. Jesus has what everyone needs. We're incapable of doing it, but Jesus is not, and he can do it through us. The walking of this, the story of the storm. The disciples are going out. Maybe they're eager. They're saying, I could go out and bring the bread of life to the world, and we have here the storm. It sounds like it'd be great. I got the bread. Everybody's going to want the bread. I mean, when they saw Jesus feed the 5,000, like everybody's like, yeah, give me the bread. This is great. That's not going to happen to the disciples. It didn't happen to Jesus. They're going to enter into a world where there is tumult and problems, and there's going to be responses to them. They're going to be in a storm as they try uh, to minister Jesus Christ to the world. And the ultimate answer is 
of Jesus says, I am with you. I am with you. And then we go to the next story, and Jesus shows up at Gennesaret. And look at the response of the people. Everybody's just clamoring. He barely has to do anything. They are just, there's Jesus, and they come, heal me, heal me, and they're just touching his garments, and he's, they're being healed. And we see here a message to the disciples of, look at, people want Jesus Christ. People need Jesus Christ. Christ has what the world so desperately needs. You know, in John, Jesus says to the disciples, he said, you say there's four months till the harvest, but I say lift up your eyes for the fields are white for the harvest. And basically what he's saying there is, you think people aren't ready to receive me. Lift up your eyes, they're ready. That's the message in Gennesaret. People are ready. You know, that's a message I need to hear right now because in New England, it's been tough. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, we have a home reach out on Thursday nights. We have met neighbor, we met 50 neighbors at a, a party. But so many of them said, yeah, we're interested in coming out and, and, and talking about the purpose of life and maybe exploring Christianity and and we got all excited and, and nobody showing up. And I, I need this picture. And I'm saying, Lord, it must be four months to the, to the harvest. And, and this, Matthew's saying here, the world desperately needs Jesus. If they only understood, they'd be rushing to him because he has all they have to offer. Don't stop sharing the message of Jesus Christ. And, and I want to say this because there might be some here today who really don't like the fact that Christians evangelize. They don't like the fact that we say Jesus Christ is the only way and that we say from the pulpit, tell your neighbors, tell those in your workplace, tell your family that Jesus Christ came to save them and, you know, a contemporary attitude is, you know, that's nice for you. Like, you know, why are you bothering us with that? We, you know, keep that to yourself. And the answer in this passage is, you can't keep it to yourself. It's what every person needs. I mean, is Jesus going to go to Gennesaret with all that he offers? And, and if nobody told them that Jesus could do this... Nobody would be there. And all those people who were ill and those people dying would just continue to be ill and die because nobody told them what Jesus could do. Perhaps the most evil thing we could do as Christians is know that Jesus has the answer for everybody and keep it to ourselves. I came across this uh, quote of a man named uh, Penn Gillette. I don't know him. I don't know if any of you know him, but apparently he's a, an illusionist and a comedian. And he's also an atheist. And he said this, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. We'd say, I don't respect people who don't evangelize. Again, this is an atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, 
And you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it might be socially awkward. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not to tell them that? That's right. We can't help but tell people what Jesus has to offer. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says words very similar to what he said to them on the sea when he said, I'm here. <laughs> Lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. When you are going to through the storms of life, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you even now. Listen to him. Stop and hear Jesus say to you. Take heart. It's I. I am. God is here with you. When you are sent out to share the gospel of who Jesus Christ is, hear his words. I am always with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? Father, we thank you for what Matthew has presented here. We have to answer questions in our lives of who you are. What do you mean to us? And are ultimately we going to keep our eyes on you? Or are we going to turn them on other things so that we live waveringly instead of steadfast? Living out lives of what our hearts proclaim. Lord, you are everything to me. Amen.